Welcome to the Stories or Soul Food podcast with your hosts, Brian Cole and best-selling author, N.D. Wilson. This audio is brought to you by Cannonball Books and Great Homeschool Conventions. Welcome to Stories or Soul Food, which you've already been told by the voice of Jake McAtee, or McCaddy, if you want to annoy him. The voice which launched a thousand bodies. Yes. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, yep. Okay. Welcome. We're back. For the final episode. Final episode of? Uh, Nate's 100 Cupboard series. The 100 Cupboard Trilogy. I was like, yeah. what's the final episode? Final of? Yeah. Because we're still doing this next week. Right. So... Stories are soul food. We need not the final arc. episode. It's all about lens. Like you talked about in the storytelling episode, we're viewing this as the lens. Yes. The three episode, beginning, yeah. middle, end. Uh, beginning, middle, end. We're talking about the Chestnut King today. Later on, I guess we'll talk about the prequel. So we're not, it's not quite. Oh yeah, I forgot. It's not quite the final episode of 100 Cupboards, but it's one of the final episodes about 100 yeah. Cupboards. But you really don't, I don't think, my kids listen to the prequel before they listen to the whole trilogy, but that's usually not what we recommend. No, I actually think you should read, in my humble opinion, and this is just my druthers. Well, your opinion's worth more. Than I think others. you should read the trilogy, <laughs> the original trilogy, followed by the Ashtown Burial series, followed by the prequel, because the prequel is a prequel slash bridge book to both series. Yeah. Because little known fun fact, or widely known fun fact, however you want to look at it, every single book I write uh, happens in the same world. So it's all... That, which is really cool, actually, cross, because cross connected. you might have thought they were in different worlds. Yes. As I did at one, one point. One might say that because they are, I mean, at least with Allies of Time, we'll get to that. It's different in terms of genre, or at least appears to be, and yet it's still this magical realism launching point into, into a more high fantasy adventure. And it's for people who might stare closely at the legend in the front of the 100 Cupboards books at the map of the little cupboard doors and looking at all the names they they might they might be able to spot one that connects to the outlaws of time series yeah and if they're paying any attention at all <laughs> it's there the easter egg <laughs> is there people yep but you wouldn't know unless you listen to this podcast <laughs> or if you paid close attention some people actually have caught it there's things that no one has ever caught and then this is one that a number of people have caught so that's exciting i would like to hear them let us know if you think you found an easter egg that no one if else you think found. you know a thing that other people do not know please bring it to my it's attention. kind of the goal of much human knowledge i think right yeah, there. <laughs> yeah because there are a lot of things that i feel at least that no one has ever caught or noticed yeah and so if i'm wrong then you know yeah correct me can I start out with a couple of random questions? Yeah, please. Are these connected to the Chestnut King or just stuff? Well, they're related. They're, they're not totally random. They are connected to writing. Okay. Well, we can get totally random if you miscellany. want. Miscellany. We'll yeah. start with some miscellany. I think the question is, we've asked some questions about genre, but as we're concluding this mini arc, mm -hmm. um, how come Jennifer wants to know, how come you don't write YA? Why, why come? Yeah. Why come I don't do that? Why not YA? Why not YA, comma, why not? <laughs> Well, I kind of do. I just don't, I don't write market YA. So YA versus middle grade is defined by my friend, Jeannie Birdsall, National Book Award winning author of The Penderwicks. Uh, she said that middle grade is all of the intelligence, none of the hormones. And that's a great quote. 
Yeah. And I have thanked her for that and, and given her credit for that often because I use it on the regular. <laughs> YA always, and you know, there's always exceptions, but assume this is a broad brush that needs qualification. This is a, this is a overgeneralization, but YA always includes a driver slash engine of a love triangle. There are all like, that's part of the marketing. That's part of the approach. There is always a, you well, almost always a girl caught between two potential love interests. Right. And that's hunger games. That's uh, twilight. Yeah. That's everything else. So YA is incredibly emotionally romantic, emotionally charged. And that's part of, of the rules. And it's, Understanding the difference between genre and market is really important. Yeah, and you've talked YA, about that. Yeah, YA and middle grade are not different genres. They are different markets. And in those different markets, they have different market rules and different market drivers. And the consumers of YA are overwhelmingly female. And so there are, it just it changes the dynamic. And, and middle grade's majority female in many ways. I think, I'm, I'm pretty, I think it's pretty soundly so. But majority female YA is, you know, (laughs) astronomically female. And so it's a very, very different thing. And it includes, it's almost like a different rating. So in terms of YA as a different market from middle grade, think of it as like, why don't you write R? Why do you write PG 13 instead of R and thinking that you're talking about different genres. You're not talking about, you're not talking about different genres. You're talking about different target demos. You're talking about different readership slash viewership. I try to write what's known in film as four quadrant. So I am trying to tackle books that will be loved by every member of the family from the little one who hears it aloud to the old grandparent who reads it aloud. I'm trying to hit every demo. Why? So four quadrant from young. Yeah, the older quadrant kid. like if you do if you divide, you know, the the quadrants of demos, you know, it's like four quadrant just means the full circle, you know, yeah. you're talking about everybody. I that's what I want to do. And that is the kind of thing that happens really effectively at the middle grade level and does not happen really effectively above that. It can, but so you can have adult protagonists, things like that. Think about like a early Spider-Man movie or something like that. You have in that case, something that's older protagonists and yet- Which typically would mean older readership. Yep. Or But there's lots of joking and, you know, the first Avengers, that kind of thing. Iron Man, it's like if you, if you filtered Iron Man and it became funny for the whole family, Avengers- Spider-Man, you have older protagonists, but they're through the tricks of genre are aged down and are more accessible to a younger viewer because of the outfits and the weird arbitrary rules of the world and yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And yet college guys love it and you get you get all the genders, you get mm-hmm. you know, you get the the frat bros and you get yeah, everybody. And by, so if by you did, all if the you genders did, we mean two, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um all of them. But uh, all the ages, right, et cetera. Interest. So yeah, four quadrants. So you can do it with older stuff. And you're thinking about a movie like National Treasure is that kind of a thing. Right. You know, okay. like, that's I'm like, okay, so older protagonist, but you're still, you know, you're hitting everybody, Night at the Museum, you know, like that, that kind of thing. And then you, you, but you go in between that and you say, let's go teen. When you go down to teen YA, you, you're kind of narrowing in back to a specific market, not genre. It could be any number of genres. You could be writing sci-fi fantasy. You could be writing real life drama, whatever, but you're writing YA, 13 reasons why, 
you know, you're doing right. that, that kind of thing. And then you go down to middle grade and it's easy to broaden back out to four quadrant, which is why I love being there. So I can, I can imagine myself writing stories with adult protagonists where I'm targeting four quadrant consumers, but I can't imagine myself writing like pure YA. Yeah. It feels like, I feel like a helpful distinction might be that the YA market feels like a pop song and that the middle grade feels more like folk music, whereas sure. a kid you'll listen to it and yep. then also adults will listen and, to and it. And part of my motivation for writing middle grade in the first place is because I'm allowed concrete resolutions and endings, which will tie into the chestnut cane here in a minute. Yeah. So if you're looking at realism, you're looking at what you're allowed to do in markets, like different markets as opposed to genres, think of ratings and markets. If you're trying to be taken seriously, which you should give up on, but if, you're, if you want a book to be appreciated in a particular market and you write, and that particular market's teen or YA, and you write an incredibly classic story structure with a concrete ending. Oh, yeah. You know, you're, you're going to get panned. You're going to get destroyed. Right. People are going to want to muddy it up. Where's the, where's the subversion? Where's the inversion? Where's the perversion? Right. And I've actually had people use that word. Like, what, but how, well, you need to make this a little more perverse. They'll actually just use that. We have to, like, we have really? to. Really? Yeah. And they don't mean it the way we mean it. They mean they need to actually take story structure or character expectations and find ways to, oh, okay. you know, make that a little more perverse. So but they don't even, want the good guy to just go through his story and then win. Is that what they're saying? Yeah, right. right. And so if you're thinking about like when Christine Cohen was on, I was on the podcast and she was talking about morally gray, you know, like you're, you know that kind of yeah. thing. So that's where YA lives, where... What I get to do is write classic, at least I used to be able to do, and what I'm still trying to do, is write classic story structures, classic character arcs, classic adventures with concrete endings. And it always makes me kind of happy when kids think that I'm, I'm dead, that when they're surprised that I'm alive. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, oh, I'm glad you slotted me on that shelf. Right. Like, you didn't feel modern. You, yeah. You, you read my story and you thought it belonged on that shelf next to the other dead people who have written classic stories. And that, mm. that brings me a great deal of pleasure. So that's the, I mean, that's kind of a long-winded answer for why middle grade and not YA. And it requires an understanding of market, not genre. Do not think of YA as a genre. Yeah. It is a market. Right. Uh, the genres straddle and market expectations demand a certain kind of thing that excludes younger readership. And I, I really want that four quadrant thing. Right. We'll get to what, how Chestnut King does that. But I also wanted to point out, I, when someone says, hey, I really need a YA series by Andy Wilson, I say, read notes from the Tilt-A-Whirl, um, <laughs> which, which, you know, sometimes throws them for a loop because it's nonfiction. Right. And it stands alone. But that's the goal of fiction. It's kind of a test to see if they got the point of your earlier right. stories. Also, if you're in Ashtown, or even the back end of cupboards, even with Chestnut King, but Ashtown, I have protagonists who are the same age as protagonists in YA. Right. My, the ages straddle. So yeah. what's the difference? Yeah. You know, and yeah, and I even, I'm even teasing love interest in romance because this is right. God's world and that happens, but I'm not using it as this big driver and a big competitive driver. And it's right. not anywhere near the beating heart of the story. Right. And I, and I should say, for those who say, where's the YA? I also think it doesn't matter. Right. You, should read, you should read the series, all the, whatever age you are. And I've said it before, but when I'm rereading Nate's stuff for this podcast, I'm finding more in it and enjoying more than I did when, say, it first came out and I was a 
a lowly teenager. Yeah, I forget, I forget how young you were when I started. <laughs> I, uh, I was the target audience yeah. at the beginning. Brian was in the sweet spot. <laughs> so it's, um, it is really changing. The markets are changing. Genres don't change. Markets change and market demands change. And so it's changing in shows because Stranger Things was consumed like middle grade. Right. Uh, because it had protagonist on like entourage protagonists and the age was was kind of more middle grade but it's not you know, right it, the content for sure and it's, but it's not at a rating level it's not right it is middle grade that is a middle grade story but its rating level is more ya and teen so do you think that's good or bad or just could be either do you think the Which fact thing? that they wanted to smuggle in a bunch of what we typically view as bad language or adult themes yeah. under the guise of 12-year-olds, is that, what, what is that, what's driving that desire? Is that to try to be four-quadrant? Uh, no, they were, they were trying to be and they succeeded in being four-quadrant, obviously. It was a yeah. runaway smash hit. But right. I honestly, I don't think there's malice there. I think that there's a, there's a little bit of a subversion there with one of the adult themes. It's unfortunate. But it's um, it's a more of a film subversion, and it's also mostly has to do with their own calibration, and has they, they honestly think, yeah, this is totally normal, normal right. consumption for twelve year olds. This is totally fine, yeah, for them to watch. Where I, I, my calibration's different. So I loved VidAngel, and yeah, I watched the first season with my kids, and it was an awesome experience, and I really enjoyed curating exactly what got through and what did not get through right but uh, anyway that's an that is an example of a middle grade story that goes wildly four quadrant in order to make that work at a show level they need they need adult protagonists they need, they need adult characters who who can carry an episode carry an arc and they have them right you know they're there in the uh in the mom and in the sheriff and right so on but any anyway anyway that's also there's a whole nother let's let's that's one of my favorite phrases by the way a whole nother not just another <laughs> that's a whole nother episode that we could talk about nostalgia and people still want the movie episode i think we do talk about movies every time but maybe yeah. we maybe we need to just pick a few and break yeah them we, can, we should do a movie series let's do like three or four and then uh, also talking about nostalgia that because that connects to books that connects to middle grade that connects to film right. And to successful shows. Good. So question specifically chestnutty. Yeah. Um, the chestnut king. Yeah. When we're a reader and we're heading into the third and final series, I know we have certain expectations, but in a sense, we're along for the ride. Uh, sure. What do you as an author have on your mind as you're heading uh, in to write that a, third, a lot third and of, final? A lot of foreboding. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's the hard one. Okay. So the last book, that's hard. And if you've done your job, then there's parts of it that are super easy, but mopping up every, every thread in a way that satisfies, that has a great finish and a great aftertaste and trying to tie off everything is, is, uh, daunting. So especially when you've had two books prior to, uh, <laughs> throw threads everywhere. And then also through that book itself, you've also thrown a bunch of threads everywhere. So you have to introduce new things. And I'm experiencing this with silent bells. When I get questions from people saying, why did you introduce something new, something completely new in book four? It's like, well, you, you have to, yeah, it's like the book, right. it's, it's its own story. That's also on the shoulders of previous stories. And you've got to mop up, introduce and mop up new threads and also 
you know, close off all the old ones. Yeah, that's where you're doing the thing. You're not making your story perverse, but you are making it. You don't want it to be completely expected. You no, can't, you can't ha- just yeah. tie everything up. Exactly. No, it's got to, like you have to. It. You have to introduce variations. You have to do callbacks. You have, people have to say, "Oh, right, that's how this works." You know, with uh, the gin, for example, in in uh, the Silent Bells. But I'm wandering from the Chestnut King, but at the same time, I'm not. So the Chestnut King was that way, where I had to pay off the completion of Henry's inheritance. Yeah, like I had to actually complete this coming of age story. So you know, it's timid, you know, timid, afraid, frightened, identityless boy, you know, who, who discovers that he isn't who he thought he was, but also is who he thought he was. And that needs to change. So he, in many ways is exactly who he thinks he is. And that must be outgrown. He has to leave that behind. He's got to climb up a reed out of the pond, like a dragonfly nymph and actually like split open and crawl out of himself, fly away. That's gotta, that's gotta happen. And it starts to in Dandelion Fire and in Chestnut King, you have to actually pay off the, the completion of the coming of age so that it is. Okay. So pay off. Came of age. Yeah. Henry York came of age. Gotcha. In Chestnut King. And when you say pay off, do you mean emotionally for the reader or do you mean plot wise? I mean all the above. So narratively, but also in terms of emotion, emotion, the, the emotional investment that you've asked of your readers. You have to you have to view them like backers in a business venture where you're like, okay, I've taken this from you. Where's the return? So we better feel the excitement. You got this has to pay off of Henry's metamorphosis. Yeah. So if you have invested in Hen- in Henry, if you've invested in this character, I appreciate that investment, and I need to really do work. I need to do significant work in order to uh, have you realize a return, and I need that with every character. So. You know, I, I need that with Uncle Frank. I need that with Fat Frank and Aunt Dottie and the girls and, and everybody. So if you've invested in this world, you've invested in this character, you've invested your imagination and your hours, you know, your, your late nights, summertime reading under the blankets with a flashlight. Yeah. Whatever your investment is, I'm, I'm looking to give you a return. Okay. And so that, that requires plot work. That requires a lot of character work. That re- requires a whole lot of work setting up all the dominoes. And yeah. getting them all to fall. What you do not want to do is have spent three years of your life setting up a giant domino spectacle and then invite a, you know, a couple million kids to come hang out with you to watch and have the last 10 feet not fall. Mm. You know, just, yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like, it's just not, you know, it's just not what you do. So, so what did you do when you're looking at Henry? How did you try to make that payoff happen in the Chestnut King? Well, I mean, I make fun of people for caring about spoilers, but I also don't really want right. to spill a bunch. So his ultimate showdown with Nemione, his ultimate relationship with the Farron, mm-hmm. like the, the reestablishment where that like, okay, so this is like post-World War II, like everything's gone up for grabs. Everything's been thrown out the window. And as the dust settles on the other side, you know, where, where are the lines? Where are the lines? Where are the relationships? How, what's the dynamic like? You know, what's the dynamic like between Henry and the Farron? What's the dynamic like between Henry and his cousins? Between Henry yeah. and his family? His actual origin? So he's now fully and completely discovered his true origin. He's been christened. He's been named. He is now his father's son, his real father's son in a, an entirely new way. Right. 
and he has to then also go uh, pay off as a as a green man, as a pauper son, as a seventh yeah. son. You know, pay off as a seventh son in how he has a, a face off with his family's most ancient enemy. Right. So it's you know he's he's paying off on a lot of different levels, and he also has to be good at baseball. It's little things like that. Yeah. He can't, well, I was thinking, he can't I, suck at baseball. So I, one, of my, one of my favorite scenes is Henry still going back to Kansas from this other world to go play some baseball. And that makes me really happy. Right. As, a, as a, an editor, when you're looking at a manuscript and you're heading through those first few chapters and you're feeling kind of the elevation, I don't yep. know, you're feeling the elevation yep. of a number of different things. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really fun when they then land. Yeah, it, it pays off, and that's a big part of the edit, the editorial process is is saying, "Hey, you know what? This bad guy didn't feel big, high enough. I don't know. You didn't elevate enough. So mm -hmm. in a way that when he came down, we all went ooh and ah, you know. Yep. So in the nineties, this this is going to be a reference for very few of you. <laughs> in the nineties, when the Chicago Bulls were doing their introductions of their starting five uh, at home, and those lights went out, and and lights started like spinning around the court. And there's that very specific song that starts, and then the announcer comes over the speakers, and he's introducing these characters. You know these these five characters on the court. It's actually really easy to be the hype man when you're writing a book. It is. It always stuns me when people fail to hype it up. They they fail to ramp ramp at the beginning. The hard part is paying off. Right. So. In that case, in the 90s, you get to Michael Jordan and he comes running out. And the, the crowd is very excited. Yeah. <laughs> and then guess what? He's also going to perform in the game. So it's, you know, it's kind of phenomenal. Okay. But then if you introduced, you know, some, some kind of slightly chubby guy from Duluth, you know, who's filling in for Michael today, <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> all the hype in the world doesn't quite work. And so when you're writing, when you're writing, and you're, you know, you're ramping up tension and you're ramping up stakes and you're elevating all these things. You, you generate a ticking clock for the reader. So there's urgency. Uh, there's always some kind of countdown. You have to generate a ticking clock for the reader. Otherwise, it's this, you know, yep. open-ended whatever. And Timeless sort of yeah. meandering. You have all the time in the world, which means there's no, <laughs> there's no story. And you've, you've established the stakes clearly. And you've established the stakes both externally and internally for the character. So you have external plot stakes, but you've also established character stakes, personal stakes. And in doing so, even prior to that, you have revealed the flaws of that character to the audience while also making the readers, the audience, incredibly loyal to them. Like generating affection and loyalty to a character where there's honesty about the flaws. And they want to see this character outgrow those flaws. They want to see this character learn and you know, and become the person they can become. You set all that up. If you just have a checklist, you can do that. You know, it's like, okay, ticking clock, stakes, you know, internal stakes, external stakes, relational stakes. You establish all these different stakes. World, setting, like you made the world cool. Yay. Okay, now make it all sing. Make the whole choir go together at once. Make it all like hit this amazing zenith. Make it all crescendo and then fall into release that is uh, truly satisfying on every level, that's the hard part. Okay. And it so sounds, that's why- Sounds hard. <laughs> yeah. That's why Chestnut King is sitting here as his book where I have to have all the symbols and the timpani and everything going. Everything has to be going 
and I need to get the volume all the way to 11 and then it has to actually crash and pay off and it's got to pay off in an explosion of Danny Lyons and he's got to be good at baseball and he's got to be relating to this ragged and he's got to be relating to his new family in another world and we have to kind of have affection for it but we still can't lose Kansas and we have to have the relationship with the cousins and Uncle Frank and right. this, and all these different things where by the end of a trilogy, as opposed to a standalone book, you can have 57 bullseyes that you have to hit. And then afterwards, you read that first draft and you're like, oh, there's like 17 that are still in. <laughs> I totally forgot. I myself forgot about paying off this side character or paying off this little uh, little gag, this callback that I, I laced yeah. in there. So I know we're talking about Chestnut King, but like in, in Silent Bells, it's props that we say goodbye to the last book you know, things he's leaving behind where it's like, okay, so this device, you know, think, think about it in Harry Potter, the invisibility cloak. Imagine having to use it for a last time when you know it's going to burn. Yeah. And it's like, and it's going to burn and you know, it's going to burn and you have to decide, okay, this is what it's for. Did she do this that? Is, no, I'm, no, I, no, okay. no, I'm I was just saying say this, is what I'm, this is what yeah. I'm doing in, in the silent bells right now. And what's in some of what I did in chestnut King with the farmhouse, you know, it's just kind of, you have to say goodbye to stuff. And that, that is actually one of the most important things in the payoff is the bittersweet. Uh, if you just go victory, 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 it doesn't work. There has to be losses and scars and things you're carrying forward. You know, you have to be whiskey and wine. This character uh, has to be whiskey and wine who's distilled, you know, like aged, How do you approach aged, the bittersweet? Dis distilled, you catastrophe, very Tolkien. But it's got, it's yeah. got a, and I'll dive into that, but you have to, you have to have them moving forward with wounds. Like they they have, you have to, and they can be wounds that are partially healed, wounds that you don't mind, wounds, losses, because the best vintage suffered, the best wine suffered on the vine and the best whiskey, you know, the barley suffered in the field and then is burned out with smoke and like every, it takes this incredibly long process of suffering before there's something magnificent on the other side. So that's what you're doing with your characters. You're, you're looking to have created a vintage, a character that, that people can just really, really like, but they've also gotten to look through the window at how this character came to that. Yeah. I hope people place. can compare that with say a bad YA series or bad middle grade and see how there's just the same base driving base beat through the whole series there's no sort of crescendo when you compare it with something that's actually building versus something that's striking the same note every single time yeah it should be really noticeable to right. a reader and i i doesn't it doesn't seem a lot of people say well how do i know how to tell whether this is good or bad and right. I, I think that you need to just look at it and listen well, to yeah it. and look at the heroes so look look at god's heroes and just look at it <laughs> and right. how many of them led charmed lives and everything worked and they never lost or they had one loss in their past which we allude to briefly in the prologue and then that's made them super awesome and now they're just yeah. super awesome in every scenario unfortunately his mother had passed away 10 years previously yes and so now he has this urgent need right uh, and so you try to drive this character forward but he's a genius and he's super athletic and everything works you know and that's just Problem. But you it's, get regular references back to the the torture of the fact that he has one parent. I've, yes. I have read manuscripts like that. Oh uh, yeah, and books, published books, and award <laughs> and award winners. Um, <laughs> True. So it's 
some people get hung up on the suffering and they like that's where they just want to point the lens as opposed to you know characters who have bruises and wounds and bitterness and things that they have to like deal with and address and and outgrow uh if they're ever going to like overcome if they're ever going to get there so as far as it goes when you're dealing with the bittersweet um i think it's really really important that it be uh cruciform and god god builds in the bittersweet by means of time and so none of us are the person we were last year all of us are in a perpetual state of dying and leaving phases behind and leaving phases behind forever and if we're sentimental and we resent the struggle and and nothing wrong with sentiment but it think sentimentality or sentimentalism to a fault sentimentalism is when you resent evil you resent the struggle you resent loss you embitters so for something that's all about being sweet it actually embitters very very quickly because you're huh. constantly losing so you're saying goodbye to your three-year-old you're saying goodbye to your four-year-old you're saying goodbye to your five-year-old you're saying goodbye to your kindergartner it's like it's just there there it goes there it goes there it goes and it's another moment gone and another moment gone and there's just this perpetual state of loss that we live through and that's what living is is a perpetual state of loss but it's also a perpetual state of receiving and so you're you're growing and you're receiving the next moment and the next day and you can't always be looking back over your shoulder you know you just can't because you'll if you do that you will like lot's wife <laughs> lose everything yeah that's you the, have to be looking forward receiving with gratitude and becoming and using the moments behind you to become and grow and improve and so in a story i try to use time the same way and loss the same way and so even at the end of an event adventure there's a there's a form of loss the closure of a grand adventure has this bitter sweetness to it by definition you just kind of it's it's gone right you know we were awesome and now we're not <laughs> like it's there it goes, and we were the people who survived that. Uh, but kids, people, kids feel that a lot—that the, the, feeling yeah. of it's over, and I feel bad because yeah. it was so good. <laughs> yep, it's over, and it's—and the thing is, if you have the world's best ice cream, and then that bowl is empty, and you say, "You know what? Hand me the carton." <laughs> like, yeah, I'm not—I'm not done. It's well, it's not going to be as good. You know, it's. Yeah. It's gone now. It's not gonna. It's not gonna bring the same experience. It's not the same con context and the narrative. It's not the same moment. You know, it just is different. And if you wake up all your kids and it's not a school night and you whoop and holler and yell at them, jammy ride, and you know, it's like what my parents used to do with us. And all these little fat people in footer pajamas come tumbling out of their beds because they're so pumped because this means we're leaving the house in our pajamas. And it's probably going to result in soft serve. And it is not done. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we're starting. We're not ending. Yeah. And then, you know, you get to that fatigue at the end and you've driven them to McDonald's and you've had soft serve and you've stared at the stars and you saw shooting stars and there's this magical moment. And then you take them back to bed and some of them have kind of lapped themselves a little sick and others have to be washed up and one of them's fussing and one of them doesn't want it to be done. You know, you want it to never end. Uh but trying to live in a perpetual state of that kind of peak or trying to live in a perpetual state of Christmas day, <laughs> you know, it just yeah. is not possible. You're paralyzed to accomplish anything. Yeah. It's a question you have to be able to answer. The, the, the six-year-old wants to know why it can't be Christmas yeah. every day. Yep. And that's why. Yeah. That, why can't it be ice cream every meal? Why can't it? Yeah. But why not? I think adults do that too with photographs. 
Oh we, gosh, we, especially now. Yeah, we're yeah. all we're we're afraid of letting something go, and and so when we're having an adventure, you want to just take pictures of it all. Yep. Rather than. Yep. In- but I think I think we're it's fine to try to grab moments. Yeah. But there's a futility to it. So I don't mind. We laugh at my house and my wife where we've moved this year is on a hill with sunsets, and you know we've had we've had sunsets before, but now we have sunsets. <laughs> you know. <that's, laughs> so. And it's really funny because she just has this burning need of like, but it deserves to be photographed. Look at this. It's amazing. It's like, but you're going to put it into a phone where it's going to be whatever. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, yeah, I won't capture. I need to make this three inches. You know, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's very, it's very, very funny. But I, I understand that need and we laugh about it and we all try to do it. Right. You know, and yeah, I don't think sure. And, but then there it goes and you might never look at it again or you might remember to post it for a friend or something. But it's just, there it goes. It's gone. It's gone. It's gone. And if we tried to constantly appreciate the past, being finite and being mortal, we would never live. So in talking to students, I will um, talk about heartbeats. Like every single heartbeat is a life or death scenario. Like every single one. And you're sitting here and you might be having one per second. You're having a life or death moment once a second. And your heart beats again. It's like, boom, boom. And like, oh, I'm still alive. And then you sit there and you're like, I wonder if I'll still be alive in another second. Oh, there it goes again. I'm still alive. And if you just live that way, and if you try to thank God for all of them every time they happen, like you would never successfully do another thing. If You'd you, be paralyzed. If you thanked God for sparing your life and for giving you more life with every single breath and every single beat of your heart, then you would be wasting your breaths and your beating heart, like you actually have to take them and do something. And so that is, I think, the bittersweet thing is you have to take and do and say goodbye. You must say goodbye and take and like you and march forward, ready to take this thing you've been given and go use it as opposed to sit there and stare at it. You know, it's, you can't wallow and you can't focus on it. You have to live in the moment, meaning the moving, the motion of moments. You have to live in the motion of moments, saying goodbye constantly, yeah, and utilizing everything you've just been given as you tackle yeah, the that, next thing. And that utilizing everything that came before, yeah, uh, it sounds like what the Chestnut King is trying to do. Yep, as a uh, that is, yeah, and so that's what a finale is. A finale is so, in a sense, Henry's maturing, and that's what when we when we get yep. the bittersweetness of maturity in a in a story. Yep. That's when we get excited. And he will never be that 12 year old with potential again. Yeah. Ever. You know, like that's, you know, just not the case. Right. It can't be. And so you're saying goodbye to that character that everybody liked. You know, you wanted to make them like him in Daniel and Fire and like him in 100 Cupboards. But now he has to be what he is. He has to have become. And in becoming, he then has to move forward again to become something else. And that is what we're all doing all the time so yeah my son my oldest son is 19 then he just got his new passport and it's his first adult passport and he was kind of like huh and staring at it like this is interesting and i told him i was like the thing that's funny is right now as you look at that and you're feeling like i'm grown up is this will be the photo that you laugh at (laughs) with your wife and you're like oh i'm so young right you're like this is that photo this is that one and this is, as my wife and I look at our kids right now, I'm like, they're all so grown up. Like, they're all so big. Like, well, actually, 
we're going to look back on this moment as remember when they were little and they were all still teenagers. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like, this is, this is it. It's all that way. Every moment's that way. Every phase is that way. And so it's a gift from God. Like it really is a gift because everything comes with urgency and everything also comes with a finish line. So I talk about this in death by living. We're still supposed to be talking about chestnut King, but, uh, imagine if you're doing some exercise video and the, the little person up in front is saying four more and four more and four more <laughs> and four more. And you're just like, stop it. I need this to be counting down. I need, in order to survive a phase of hardship, in order to survive a phase of adventure, that the possibility of an ending is one of the only things that keeps us going. Mm. We get to the ending and then we have this odd catharsis and nostalgia for the struggle and looking back over our shoulders. And then we have to go into the next struggle. Okay. So you said we needed to talk about nostalgia in a future episode, but I think yeah. we're doing it now. Kind of. So connect, can you connect that nostalgia versus sentimentality? What's the difference? Well, they, they obviously, they can overlap completely. So there's, there can be sentimentalism uh, can uh, totally overwhelm and, can, and just overpower and utilize nostalgia. So people can be sentimentally attached to uh, the, past. the past, but people can just as easily be, be sentimentally attached to the possibilities of the future and, and staring forward uh, you know, about the progress of man. Think Elon Musk is sentimentally attached to the future. And to these, you know, infinite possibilities. That, uh, and so it's sentimentalism is just the resentment of the way a struggle is handled and the way evil and pain are treated and emotionally, emotionally related to, uh, you know, it's just, it's kind of like a very, very, it, it dresses up like attachment to the sweetie nice and turns into just bitterness against the struggle. Right. And because, so, because newsflash, we are in a world of yeah. a lot of sadness. Yeah. You got to be ready to handle that. Yeah. And so sentimentality can be just a bunch of lies. Sentimentalism can be a bunch of lies. And this can manifest in, uh, you know, precious moments. This could manifest in, you know, Thomas Kincaid painting. This could manifest in a lot of different ways. And it's not to say that every Thomas Kincaid painting is bad, but I've seen some that are just false. Right, because it's capturing the enjoy well a fake emotion about light. I mean, uh, they call him the painter of light, but it makes it makes me mad because he's not the painter of light. Yeah, no, I I like a cottage in the woods as as much as anybody else, as but, much as the next man. Yeah, but it's <laughs> those puddles that are glowing. Uh, none of them have suicidal worms in them, mm. which is what puddles all have. Right, you know, God filled the world with for some reason armies of earthworms, and when it rains and there's puddles, they think. I must drown myself. <laughs> is, I don't know what's my, going on. The clock has counted down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So any kid knows when you go to stomp on a puddle, it's like, ooh, there's another beached worm. There's another whale, you know, little whale carcass for this yeah. tiny ocean. Yeah. Those are the details that get omitted by sentimentalists. So sentimentalists don't paint those scenes with any dead branches on any trees. Sentimentalists don't have no dandelions in the yard. Yeah, they don't have out. thistles. They don't have worms in the puddles. They yeah. don't, you know, they just, they don't. I think that's um, because people want to, I think it is that moment you look at the painting and you want to feel good. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's what it is. Yeah. Well, I think there's a version of it recently having had emergency surgery. I'm fine. Thank you. Um, gallbladder. It's okay. <laughs> uh, when they bring you a blanket out of the oven, <laughs> you know, they, they bring you a heated blanket and throw it over you in a hospital bed. You're just like, 
It feels comfy. You're like, yes. Okay. This is so fan- that's what this the is fantastic. <laughs> I totally get that. Um, I get that as a brief moment. I get it for you know whatever need. You know, it's like I under I understand. I I can love a microwave blanket as much as anybody. Uh, if that's how they do it, don't do that. It might set it on fire. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think we can only assume yeah. that that is how they do it. So that's kind of how I view art like that. It's like that's an oven heated blanket. You know, it's right. that it's that kind of a, a okay. thing. Not Good. not a picture of God's art. It's not a picture of what God has chosen to do. Okay. Um. So as far as Chestnut King went, I wanted to pay off Henry's gifts, uh, Henry's totem of the dandelion. Hen- Henry's legacy in terms of his family's relationship to Nehemiah and every aspect of his inheritance and growth. And then at the very, very end in the chapter, I always call Crazy Berry uh, after the, the title of that chapter in my first book, Lee Pike Ridge, which we'll, I guess we'll talk about at some point. Yeah. Uh, but Crazy Berry is always Eucharistic for me. I always want some form of Sabbath rest, you know, paired with of bread and wine like some symbol of it some token of it whether it's a barbecue or it's a juice box or something some moment where people stop and take stock where you have characters who really take stock of the moment and the whole scene and what they've been through and what lies ahead what they've lost what they've gained and what lies ahead and that is that is the bittersweet moment and that's one of my favorite things to write in any series, but especially after the last draft, when I know I've finally tracked down every loose end from this sweater and finally pinned it all down or snipped them all off or done whatever I need to do to, to make every domino fall right for the kids and the readers who've invested in the story. So that's kind of the long landing runway, the yeah. opposite of the runway, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> like at the end of the Lord of the Rings, the cleansing of the Shire and that mm-hmm. whole sort of slow fade yeah and i never take as long i know yeah it is i never take as long as tolkien does there uh because that always bothered me when i was a kid i love it and i like it now more than i did when i was a kid so i don't add as many chapters as he as he did right but i really enjoy those it's a long finish uh in lord of the rings so for the other thing i had to pay off is i I referred to in the other podcast the legend of robert kirk from the secret commonwealth which i play with, draw from, echo in Dandelion Fire, and it then explicitly yeah, explicitly tap into with the chestnut king. So so why a chestnut tree? Uh chestnuts, well, here's here's a kind of a complicated answer. There's two answers. One is I am very fond of chestnuts. And one of the reasons why I'm very fond of chestnuts is there's nothing cooler. And every time a chestnut comes out of a conquer, you know, one of those green maces. Spiky things, yeah. Yeah, so when, when a chestnut pops right out fresh and it's got this glossy. Yeah, what a color. I mean, it's just impossible. It's just truly impossible. The grain, the hue, you know, the patterns. The smoothness. The, yeah, everything. And, and every spikes. time I've stared at it as a kid, as an adult, is always, if I can make a floor like this, imagine if you could capture this, duplicate this, and you cannot it cannot be done it, and then they always you fill a bowl with them and they sit on your table and they're amazing and then they always dry and shrivel and they're all ready to go into the ground and make another chestnut tree like they have a they have a purpose and so it's this it is this ecclesiastes thing it's a 
Yeah, I, I think it's a perfect picture. And so I really I have a fixation with chestnuts for that reason. I really, really like chestnuts. Um, but also in liking chestnuts, um, we had them around a lot because of where we lived and, you know, adjacent trees. And my kids would collect so many <laughs> and we would have them all around very, very shiny and so many stray chestnut trees growing where they were dropped and thrown and everything. Uh, and messing around with them once because I was in a remodel and I had a piece of wire next to me and my son was running around playing and there was this nice glossy chestnut and i picked up a wire and i shoved it through the chestnut and uh bent the ends like a i think a torque is what it's called like a kind of a solid necklace um oh, okay what's it called there's a name for it uh, that's probably no, i think the wrong it is one. torque like celtic or viking they, right. they, i'm sure the i'm sure the mediterranean peoples did it too uh, and so i hooked the ends and i stuck it on his head and hooked it back and said there now you're the chestnut king and that was where the title came from. Okay. And I was like, oh, I like that a lot because I like chestnuts. And also chestnuts were just this great picture for me of what it means to uncover treasure that just disappears. And all treasure is like that. Gold is like that. Diamonds are like that. Even things that we think of as more permanent, like you can't take them with you. They all go away. Everything fades, breaks, is lost. Everything goes. But then there's some treasures like that that just show it to you and in uh rapid rapid speed so that's where that came from that's why the chestnut king is the chestnut king both in title and in theme for the king of the pharaon um but yeah that's and i still want to duplicate it i would love 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 a floor that just looked like fresh chestnuts stain just can't do it no cannot texture's wrong materials wrong and if you did it with plastic, it would, that would just be wrong. <laughs> yeah, know, so, feels, feels bad. Yeah. So how to do it. And so I've thought about encasing chestnuts in epoxy and doing tests, and, but they would just kind of rot out in there. Right. I mean, because there's, there's, it's quite lucrative when you create a new color that lasts. Yeah. Uh, I know the, the blues and the reds that all the business buildings are painted, they get, they get yep. patented and everything. Yeah. When there's the biggest, like today's, this year's most popular color. And yeah. Yeah, so the the actual texture and color and grain of a fresh chestnut cannot be matched. Yeah, so we need that color some year. Chestnut King, is that what you call it? Chestnut King, that's what we call it. <laughs> Somebody out there, really good with stains, go for it. Call it Chestnut King. You have my permission now. <laughs> <laughs> he just needs a few gallons for his own floor. Yes, exactly, for something. There we go. I think we covered it. I didn't want to give away too much of the Chestnut King. No, I think that but works. But have fun, people. I can also say there's a pub in uh, the Chestnut King where there are shipwrecks listed on beams along with souls lost. And I like that a lot. It's also part of the, you know, part of the whole motif. But that's something I experienced in Cape Cod uh, with an old map that I found. Actually, it might not even be that old, but a few decades old where somebody had uh, listed every shipwreck in Cape mm. Cod, along with a number of souls next to it. Wow. So, which my wife bought for me. And it's, it was just, it's just re hangs in my office right now. And it's really narratively potent when you look at stuff like that. And that was the end of a lot of people's stories. Yep. So, I mean, you look at it and you think, wow, like there's just, there's just always this heft, there's a heft to it. Um, and so that is tied in as sort of like a, a symbol of the whole thing of all the goodbyes and the finishes and the, yeah. you know, the things over your shoulder as opposed to the things you're going toward. Have you heard the uh, sea shanty song, uh, Bones in the Ocean by the, the Longest Johns? <laughs> I have not. Should I? Shall I? Uh, my kids and I really have enjoyed 
Bones in the, the Ocean. The Longest Johns. The yeah. Longest Johns. Yeah. I've seen their name. I haven't actually yeah. listened, listened to them. My son's been uh, covering sea shanties recently, so. Nice. So have we. You're hearing, yeah. hearing the four-year-old singing yeah. uh, Santiana or uh, the Wellerman is pretty fun. Yeah, so. <laughs> exactly. Well, thanks for tuning in. That's it for the Chestnut King. And we definitely didn't cover nostalgia completely, but we will. We'll do a thorough nostalgia yeah. thing at some point. Yeah, I'm not sure what we're doing next week yet. We have to talk. Okay. Well, so, maybe it's nostalgia. Yeah, we'll maybe see. next week we'll do a nostalgia. We'll just talk about this week. with that we're out thanks for listening to this week's edition of the stories or soul food podcast if you're someone highly invested in kid fiction and finding the best stories for your kids and you haven't downloaded the canon app i want to encourage you to download and subscribe today you can find things on there such as christine cohen's the winter king Ethan Nicole's Brave Ollie Possum, Peter Lightheart's Wise Words, a book on Narnia from Douglas Wilson titled What I Learned in Narnia, and much, much more. Download the app today wherever you get your apps and subscribe.